Hello and welcome to the Travel Diaries podcast. I'm Holly Rubenstein. I'm a travel and entertainment journalist. And here each week, I'll be speaking to a very special guest about the seven chapters in their life's travel diaries. From their earliest childhood travel memory and the first place they fell in love with, to their hidden gem and what's at the top of their travel bucket list. We'll be uncovering their adventures around the world and the travel experiences and destinations that have shaped their lives. Thanks to everyone who's tuned in or sent me a message about last week's episode with Jessica Nabongo. If you haven't tuned in yet, this is a really good one. Jessica is the first black woman in history to have visited every country in the world, all 195 of them. So as you can imagine, they were some travel diaries. Before we get started with today's very special guest, I've still got quite a few places to fill you in on from my travels since last season. So this week, I wanted to tell you about a summer trip that I took to Cornwall via Bath. It was a long old drive, so I was extremely grateful that the team at Alfa Romeo got in touch and were kind enough to loan us one of their top range 4x4s, the Alfa Romeo Stelvio Quadrifoglio for the week, making all that driving, our long old journey, a dream. Like most Alphas, it's a stunning car to look at, turned a lot of heads, and the interiors were so slick, black leather, red stitching, I was sold. And I've never really driven a super powerful car before. The sound it made was amazing. It really, it really went. So thank you, Alfa Romeo. They have a partnership with iEscape, the boutique hotel booking platform. And so we broke up the journey down to Cornwall with a stay at number 15 Great Pulteney in Bath, which is a hotel on one of the prettiest streets in the city. It's a bit expensive, but it's very well positioned for exploring Bath, which I had forgotten is such a great city. It'd been years since I was last there. So I'm already planning a little Christmas shopping trip back there in a couple of weeks, actually, because it's, you know, it's not that far and it's just beautiful. And then from there, we continued west to our stay for the rest of the week, which was a new opening for 2021. I love visiting new openings. It's called Three Mile Beach. So Three Mile Beach is a collection of 15 luxury self-catering beach houses in Gwythian on the north coast of Cornwall. So to give you a bit of an idea of what it's like, we stayed in a three-bedroom house with our dog, Indy, and it's great for families, young kids, if you have them. It was just a stone's throw from three miles of the most stunning golden sand beach. I have traveled a lot around Cornwall and I've not seen a beach as spectacular as this even if you're not staying Gwythian Beach is a must visit with views over Godrevy Lighthouse on one side and then the lights of St Ives to the other it has this sweeping panorama that is just spectacular we loved our houses breezy beach chic design and it came with absolutely everything you could possibly need for a beach holiday the best equipped kitchen board games beach games wetsuits even a scandy sauna and a hot tub on the deck and so much space which is always a premium on a family holiday right it was very special Plus, you can do like these cool added things like hiring um, an uni pizza oven and then the team brings you every ingredient you could possibly imagine to make your pizzas or they can even organize for you to have a private local chef to cook for you so you can just put your feet up and relax. I could go on and on about how much I love this place and it's certainly somewhere that I'll be returning to in the future. I'll stop there now though because 
Coincidentally, Three Mile Beach comes up as a pick on next week's episode, so you'll hear a bit more about it from someone else then. So, on to today's guest. Oh, this is one you're going to love. Steve Backshall is a BAFTA-winning presenter, a writer, an explorer, a naturalist, and an all-round daredevil. His big break as a broadcaster arrived when National Geographic offered him the post of adventurer in residence and he's been taking on some of the toughest challenges on earth ever since gracing our tv screens with shows like deadly 60 expedition and the lost land series on this episode you'll hear that steve's great passion is discovery discovery of new places and new animal species and he's prepared to go to the ends of the earth to achieve this whether that's uncovering never-before-seen ancient human artwork in a Borneo cave, tracking elusive snow leopards in the mountains of Kyrgyzstan, coming extremely close to death while kayaking in Bhutan, or diving with sharks, like he does in his new show, Shark with Steve Backshaw. And in my opinion, he's one of the best storytellers that we've ever had on the podcast. So, without further ado, let's hear from him now. Steve Backshall, welcome to the Travel Diaries podcast. A guest I have been wanting to join me since the very beginning. We're now in season six. I'm so excited. How are you today? I'm doing very, very well indeed. The sun is shining outside. It's a beautiful autumn morning uh, and I'm very glad to be talking to you. Oh, thank you so much, Steve. Well, the last I looked online, it said that you had been to 111 countries thus far. Has that changed since? More? Got up? It, it has, yeah. I, I added um, I added two new countries to that over the last uh-huh. year, so I'm now 113. Wow. So, I mean, to say that we've got a lot to cover today is a bit of an understatement. Well, apparently it's, uh, it's, it's fractionally uh, more than Michael Palin and less than the Queen. <laughs> Well, actually, on last week's episode, we had a guest who has been to every country in the world. Who's that? Her name is Jessica Nabongo. She's the first black woman to have visited every country in the world, all 195, I want to say. And that was a really interesting chat because you've got every point of comparison. Well, I I now feel thoroughly put in my place. Thank you very much. Well, we're going to start at the very beginning of your travel diaries, going right back to uh, your childhood. Chapter one is your earliest childhood travel memory. So both my mum and dad worked for the airlines their entire life. Dad Mm -hmm. worked for British Airways for 45 years. And the big bonus of that was that we got free travel. And so even though we weren't massively well off, we would travel to the most far-flung parts of the world because it was actually cheaper than it was to holiday here in the UK. So from a very young age, we were on safaris in Africa. We traveled to the Far East and to South America. And mum and dad are proper travelers. You know, they they are real wildlife gypsies who have a, a, a nomadic spirit in their blood. And they were super, super adventurous. They they took us to places that I wouldn't dream of taking my kids to now and were were really tough and rugged and robust about it. And when we turned up places, they wouldn't have booked anything. 
And we would really? just wander around towns in developing nations at three o'clock in the morning, looking for a guest house that would have us, stayed in some absolutely repel- – I can remember sleeping in someone's garage on the concrete floor because they completely failed to find us a room to stay in. Uh, yeah, I mean, some of it was amazing. Some of it was awful. And like you're talking about developing countries that you travel to that you perhaps wouldn't think to take your young kids to. So like which kind of destinations did come to mind when you think of those those trips? Well, I think one of the most one of the trips that I remember most fondly and that had the most formative effect on me was Zimbabwe. Mm-hmm. Um, but Zimbabwe was a troubled nation e- even back then. And it was somewhere that was quite daring to go to with a young family. But it was also the time when I kind of knew what I wanted to do with my life for the first time. I can remember going on safari and being taken by this guy who just seemed to be omnipotent, seemed to know everything about the wildlife, was able to to bend down and rub his fingers in the dust and say, oh, lions passed this way just a couple of hours beforehand. And it was a, a female with two cubs and one of the cubs was limping slightly. And then you'd go around the corner and there they'd be. And I was like, how is he doing this? This is, this is witchcraft. I love it. This is what I want to do. And I decided when I was a kid that I wanted to do exactly that, to be a guide in an African safari park. Mm. And I guess now my life is not so different from that, just maybe a little bit better. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah, that dream became a reality. I love that. And and you've you'd said before that this travel as a youngster was transformational and had a massive role to play in how you ended up living your life. So was that in the sense of knowing what direction you wanted to head or in other ways as well? There's there's lots of things that I took for granted as a kid and it was particularly in terms of how comfortable I felt being on the road, being without a plan without knowing where I was going to sleep that night. Things that when I came to become a professional traveler, because my my first job out of university was working as a travel guidebook writer and having that sense of it will be all right somehow of just relying on your own resources, relying on it, it, just finding a way to be okay was really important when I started traveling professionally. Mm. And so from writing guidebooks to then this big leap, which sounds like, frankly, young travellers absolute dream job being offered the role of adventurer in residence at National Geographic. I mean, how cool. How did that come about? So I was working as a travel guidebook writer and writing um, independently for, for all the newspapers and magazines and failing dismally. I had to move back in with my mum and dad. I was working in bars and nightclubs and, you know, bussing trays in restaurants just to pay the bills. And I kind of thought, well, it it looks like television is a better place to be. So I I took myself out to Colombia, which was at the time the most wild and rugged and windswept and dangerous destination that I could think of. Spent about six weeks wandering around the rainforest with a little video camera filming myself sleeping rough and catching snakes and spiders and scorpions. And I sent it to National Geographic and they just took me on off on the spot. I left the meeting with the company credit card in my hand uh. and being tasked to go out and just do what I did, go on expeditions, film the whole thing on my own, all self-filmed, selfie style before selfies were a thing. And 
it was amazing. And it was incredibly liberating. Uh, I made so many mistakes. A lot of the early stuff that I made was totally unwatchable. But I, I I learned so much from it. You know, you, you edit this podcast yourself and you will know better than anyone that the editing process teaches you so much. It teaches you about the things that you have done well, about the things that you've missed. And having the opportunity to not just film my own stuff, but research it, put it together, present it, and then edit it, I learned quite quickly the literacy of of television because it has a language which is completely different to, to any other mm. form of media. Mm. And how to bring a place to life. Yes, absolutely. In a visual medium. That's exactly it. And I, I would say to anyone out there who is thinking about trying to get into doing what I do for a living, that's what you need to do. You need to, to get a hold of every area of the medium from, from learning how to film to learning how to edit because that will teach you how to tell the story. Mm. Well, chapter two is actually the place where you learnt the most about yourself. I know exactly where it is. Uh, it is Western New Guinea that at the time was known as Irian Jaya, victorious Irian. It is now known as West Papua, um, a very troubled part of the world. But I had been working, writing the rough guide to Indonesia. I spoke Indonesian. I, I felt pretty comfortable. You there. spoke Indonesian? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'd be so berbicara bagus bahasa Indonesia. How did you and, pick and that so, up? Well, because I, I I was writing the guidebook. I was there for over a wow. year traveling around, wow. so I, I I had to learn to be able to converse. Yeah, and I thought, right, I'm going to take on a massive expedition. I'm going to try and walk across West Papua on my own, and it was a shambles. I, I failed from start to finish. I got lost. I got stuck. I ran out of money. I got lonely and homesick. Uh, I I made a complete mess of it. Looking back, I, I also had some experiences that were insane. I, I met previously uncontacted tribes. Um, mm. I met tribes who were still practicing cannibalism. Um, I went into portions of the, the the rainforest where I you know definitely should not have been, but I saw birds of paradise and crocodiles and you know all these insane animals, and it really as well as intimidating me captured my imagination and of has course. taken me back to that part of the world over and over again. What does it feel like to meet? Because I studied anthropology, I can't imagine how exciting it must be to say meet a, a tribe that had, was previously uncontacted by who weren't aware of like Western culture. Like, how how do you process that? And also, how did you go about interacting with them, or did you interact with them? I wasn't sure. Oh yeah, no, no, I I, I very much did, but it's it's a really tricky one. I didn't study anthropology. It's it's not my um, my subject of expertise. It's just something that I've kind of felt my way through through being a professional traveler for so long. And one of the key things is the responsibility that you carry with you. I've had lots of absolute horror stories from people who've gone in as as travelers, blundering blind into cultures that they very little understand. And it's so easy to leave a, a legacy that is that is bad. And the important thing is to to go in with an, an open heart and an open mind to give as much as you possibly can and 
just take as as little as possible. And in those early days, I think I managed that. You know, there were a couple of times where it was quite clear that I was not welcome, and so I left. And there were times when I was very, very welcome and offered an extraordinary amount of hospitality. And the key thing there is just to make sure that you don't you don't take too much. It's probably, and I'm sure as an anthropologist yourself, you would think that it is probably the most exciting place in the world for anthropology, mm. something which can teach us so more, so much about the migration of human beings across the planet, about agrarian cultures, about where we come from, about tribalism. Um, it's utterly, utterly fascinating. There are at least 1,500 different languages on the island, not dialects, but languages. People can be living in two villages that are miles apart and they speak a different language from the other village. And the only time that they're going to interact is probably going to be violent. It is a, a lifestyle that sometimes we idealize, but which can be pretty brutal. And certainly the the worst that I have seen of of human civilization has been in places like New Guinea, where, for example, oil money has sort of, but not quite, impinged on a local society in enough of a way to introduce drink and drugs and a, a certain amount of money, but not to bring in all of the good stuff that that civilization can bring with it, mm. and the the damage that is created is is heartrending to see. And then at the same time, I've been I've been invited into people's homes to to you know share what little they have in a way that you very rarely would be allowed to hear in in the UK. Mm. And I, I I I find I find it something that I have to continually check myself with over and over again. You have to, as I said, have an open heart, but also you have to be very, very thoughtful and think what I'm saying now, what I'm showing now, what I'm doing now, what I'm leaving behind, can that have a negative impact or can it be be very, very positive? Mm, yeah. Something that we should all bear in mind wherever we travel, whether it's remote or not. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, a, a, a classic would be you know, there there have been many occasions where I've I've sort of you've, you're staying with a family, and someone has a cut or a wound, and you decide to patch it up for them. And the next thing you know, you have a queue going out the door of people who are who are waiting to be treated. And I've got like my little med kit that's that's kind of designed for me to patch up the odd blister with, and and you kind of think, oh dear, I've I've got myself in trouble here. <laughs> So we're we're thinking about places where you learned the most about yourself and I was I didn't realize that you had had such a close call when you were kayaking out in the beautiful country of Bhutan. Can you tell me a bit about that day because I imagine that was one where you learned a lot about yourself too. Yeah, that's an understatement. I've had lots of close calls over the years, quite a few of which have been on television. And mostly they are quick. It's a rock that comes cascading off a rock face and, you know, thunders past you and you pull yourself into the cliff and go, whoa, that was close. And it's not until the next day that you go, wow, that was, that was really close. And you, then you start to process it. 
So we, we were in Bhutan. We were making the first descent of a whitewater river that runs down from the highest unclimbed mountains in the world all the way down to the lowlands in India to the south. Um, mm. It was jaw-droppingly beautiful, but it ran into a canyon with rock walls several hundred meters high on both sides. And generally speaking, when you're making a first descent of a whitewater river, you stop at every single significant rapid. You get out and you scout it from top to bottom and you go, okay, this bit's easy, this bit's dangerous, we take this line down the left, or even we get out and we carry our boats around it if it's too dangerous. Mm-hmm. Coming towards the end of one of the days, we came to a rapid and we we couldn't scout it. It was impossible. There were such high rock walls on either side that we could look a little bit, but most of it was invisible to us, so we had to run it blind. And when I went down, I completely messed up. I didn't put enough forward power into the the big drop off and it sucked me back in into a a recirculating wave like a washing machine and would not let me out and most of the time you'll get flushed free out of these features in in a couple of minutes but that didn't happen to me so i i pulled my uh ripcord came out the the kayak and then was in the water at that point you almost always get flushed out this time i got properly sucked in and i was sucked in for about four and a half minutes underwater I mean, I'd pop up to the surface every once in a while, but most of that four and a half minutes was underwater. How terrifying. And it's, it's glacial meltwater, so it's not much above freezing, the water mm. itself. And it, you're just getting thundered by tons and tons and tons of water. And after a couple of minutes of thrashing and thrashing, I started to feel my strength just go. And all of a sudden, it was like, I can't get out of this myself. I am completely at the mercy of this water. And four and a half minutes is a long time. It's a long time to process what's happening to you and to start thinking, I'm drowning. I'm not getting out of this. This is how I die. I not long before um, become a parent. And, you know, I was thinking about, about Logan and about Helen and about, you know, people having to make that call home to them and all these things are going round and round in your head. And like I said, you you know, with other near death experiences, they've been quick. They've been over in an instant. This one was a long time. And then I was just incredibly lucky that Sal Montgomery, one of my uh, teammates came back upstream, got a throw bag out and a line and got the line to me, hit me with it, dead set, first shot, pulled me out I then cannonballed down about three or four other sets of rapids in the water, completely exhausted. You know, I couldn't do anything, couldn't couldn't do anything to get out, but it, it kind of flushed me into the side and they, they pulled me out and I survived. And yes, it had a huge impact on me. It was, um, I mean that, that night I sat in my tent on my own and I sank about a half a bottle of scotch Mm. and just felt what am i doing you know i'm in my mid 40s i've i've got an amazing life back home why am i risking it all for things like this and at the time i decided that this was going to be the end of it and i wasn't going to do any more expeditions and i i had mm. completely set myself to going no enough is enough um and things things changed after that but it was it was a really really pivotal moment, and I, I will sort of think about everything in my life as being before or after that that experience. Mm. And 
I mean, you're asked about this a fair amount, I, I imagine. How is it reliving it? Is it difficult? Yeah, yeah. I, I find it really hard to watch the um, to watch the film back. I think we had four cameras on on the boat, and three of them either ripped off or, or stopped working. So mm. the, the whole such thing was the is, intensity of the water. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So the whole thing's pretty much recorded on um, one camera on the boat, one camera on the sales boat, and then a longer camera from from uh, James, who was downstream. And so, you know, you, we, we only show like a, a minute and a half or two minutes of it, only a tiny fraction of, of um, what actually happened, but it's not easy viewing. No. And I think it's pretty clear to anyone that's watching it that it's, that it's real. Yeah. <laughs> I, I hope it is. And yeah, I mean, I, I couldn't watch it back to begin with. Um, I'm, I'm getting better at watching it now, but you know, no, it's, it's not, it's not easy watching yourself nearly die. No, of course not. But then curious I was to to hear you say that it was the best day of your life, even though it was almost the last. So it obviously definitely had like a, like you said, a kind of pivotal shift that happened afterwards for you. It, it's very difficult to talk about a near-death experience without lapsing into cliche. Mm-hmm. And there's a reason for that. I guess it's it's the same for everyone. It's the same in every single one of those near-death experiences you come out of it and you've survived and every single thing you experience out of that will be a little bit sweeter because of it you appreciate everything around you that little bit more because you've nearly lost it Mm. and it's impossible to, to talk about it without lapsing into cliche but that is the way it is and that's why everybody recounts it in the same terms yeah yeah i completely get that Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Today's episode is supported by Airbnb. It has been a long old winter here in the UK and in between podcast seasons, I'm going to take a little bit of downtime to seek out some warmth. I'm jetting off to the Greek island of Mykonos, visiting some places that have been on my bucket list. And while I'm hopefully soaking up some Mediterranean sun, my home will be hosting guests from 
all over the world thanks to Airbnb. It's the perfect way to make your travels even more rewarding. Instead of letting your home sit empty while you're off exploring new destinations, why not turn it into a cozy retreat for fellow travelers just like I do. Whether you choose to rent out your entire space or just a spare room, it's up to you. I list my spare bedroom and it's been a fantastic experience, both financially rewarding and a great way to connect with new people. So if you're planning your own summer getaway or any trip for that matter, consider putting your home on Airbnb. It's a fantastic way to earn extra income that can go towards your travel expenses, souvenirs, or even that special treat you've been eyeing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.co.uk forward slash host. Thank you to Airbnb for supporting the Travel Diaries. Well, let's pause there and uh, move on to the next chapter, which is the first place that you fell in love with, Steve. I think, I think Wales. I can remember as a kid, mum and dad took us to to Gower and Pembroke and Snowdonia and the Brecon Beacons. And I remember even even when it was hammering down with rain, even when we were getting nailed by midges, looking around and going, this is awesome. It's so beautiful. It's so overwhelming. And it's like a couple of hours drive away from home. It's, it's amazing. And I, I still feel that now. I still feel whenever I go to any of the wilder parts of our small islands, a a rush of, I'd forgotten how good this place is. Yeah. And so many people in the last couple of years have probably had that same rush, right? Where they're discovering what's on their doorstep, essentially, rather than getting on a long haul flight. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and the the kind of forgotten corners of our islands, whether they be the, the Hebrides or the small isles or Noidart or Scilly, you know, I, I absolutely love the Scilly Isles, Cornwall. The, the second you get out in a sea kayak and you can just take yourself around to a little cove where nobody else is, you just feel like you have, you feel like you've just summited Everest. Yeah. And I think because it's because we live in these uh, these islands that can feel, and particularly at the moment with so many people staycationing, they they can feel overwhelmed and overladen with people. And the second you take yourself to somewhere where nowhere else is, you're kind of like, I am a total hero. <laughs> totally. I've never been to the Silly Isles. They've come up a few times on the podcast as a place that people do really seem, it seems to capture people's hearts instantly as a destination. So I've, I've been out in a sea kayak um, in Silly and had... Um, a sunfish swim past my boat, a leatherback turtle paddle into my boat. I had a fulmer follow me for six hours going around and around and around. We had common dolphins and bottlenose dolphins popping up alongside me. Um, And it's basking shark. It's here. It's in the UK. It's mental. You can be in seagrass grass beds swimming around looking for seahorses and then a couple of minutes later have a gray seal come up and come nose to nose with you and Amazing. you know that that's that's silly but i've had similar experiences in the inner hebrides i've had similar experiences around skoma and yeah. you know just just a couple of weeks ago i was off the coast of pembroke and we were diving with blue sharks we had thin whales swimming past us the second biggest creature ever known to have lived on our planet right here in in our waters gannets dive bombing from overhead into shoals of baitfish tuna whacking great tuna coming up and feasting on the baitfish from below um and 
common dolphins, like 20 of them, bow wave riding on our boat just about every single minute of every single day. Oh and my God, there, how exciting. And, and there is this, this feeling that what we have here in this country is somehow not up to the job, that it's a little bit tame, that you know our wildlife isn't the equal of anywhere else on earth. Well, it absolutely is. Mm, mm. And actually, you, you bringing that all to life reminds me of part of an episode of one of your of your new show, Shark with Steve Backshall, which I really enjoyed, really enjoyed because one of the the parts of the one of your episodes is there are sharks here in the UK. Like so many, I I didn't even really realize that. Yeah, I mean, we have anything up to thirty different species of sharks here in our waters, and some of them are. Are jaw dropping. I, I would say the experience that we had with blue sharks here in uh, off the coast of Cornwall was probably my favourite of the whole series. And a big portion of that is that it's ours, is that it's our heritage that we're connected to it, and that it is down to us. It's our responsibility to protect it. But also, I think blue sharks are probably my favourite. No, not no, probably about it. They are my favourite species of sharks. They're the, they're the most beautiful, the most graceful. The colour is is utterly hypnotic, mm. and they're super interactive. They there are individual animals who will seek out physical contact with you, and not like they're trying to bite you, but actually that they enjoy being stroked, particularly around the 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 end of the snout where they have their their most sensitive uh, sensory organs. And isn't that extraordinary? Yeah. And to experience that like half an hour off the coast of Penzance is just amazing. And anyone who's been lucky enough to be in the, the water alongside a basking shark will, will say that there, there are few better wildlife encounters in the whole world than that. Mm. I mean, what is great about the show, and I know as part of the inspiration behind it, is to kind of dispel this idea that all sharks are kind of terrifying, that they're, they're not all like Jaws, because I think that's probably imprinted in so many of our kind of subconscious. These sharks that you're interacting with a lot of the time are completely, you know, not a threat to you. Yeah. So, I mean, I've, I've been making shark programs for over 20 years now, and I I very much started off with with that message, you know, that sharks are not the malicious man-eating monsters that we make them out to be. Mm-hmm. And now I want to, I want to gravitate to a, to a new, um, a new narrative, one in which we don't even have to talk about sharks, potential threat to human beings, because it's irrelevant. It, it just is not a part of the picture and certainly not a part of the picture of, of modern shark conservation. You know, I, I think the, the old narrative it, it has a place because I, there's an awful lot of people that don't know it yet. Yeah. But I really want to try and make things that focus on how beautiful sharks are and how threatened they are, because those are the two most important things. And for travellers who want to experience a shark encounter, who want to get up close with these incredible, beautiful animals, where would you say would be the best point of a best place for them to head to for that? Well, I, I would say start here. Start in the summer in uh, Cornwall or Pembrokeshire. Mm-hmm. There are some very well-established companies now that can take you out to experience sharks from the surface if you want to. Um, and then if you if you are feeling up to it, we'll allow you to get in and snorkel with them. 
And I think that that could set you on the road to a lifelong love affair with sharks. Certainly, I consider blue shark encounters to be up there alongside things like bull sharks, tiger sharks, great hammerheads, thrasher sharks, whale sharks, manta rays. You know, I, I, I've been lucky enough to do all of the big hitters, but the ones that I've felt most special about mm-hmm. have been blue sharks right here in the UK. Amazing. So out of 113 countries, chapter four is your all-time favorite destination. Where would you pick? Maybe just today, you know, I know it could change, but where would you pick, Steve? Um, I'm going to say, being being as we're talking quite a lot about sharks, I'm going to say Bimini in the Bahamas, oh, which yeah. is going to seem like a really unlikely choice. And a lot of people are going to be scratching their heads and going, really? <laughs> but Bimini is is a really surprising place. So it has two, two islands, North Bimini and South Bimini. Uh, North Bimini has on it a heinous, great, sprawling five-star resort, which could be anywhere in the world. Uh, it has a, an area of decimation where they've obliterated perfect pristine mangroves to turn them into luxury accommodation, which, which billionaires will use like once every decade. Mm. Um, and that's all pretty sad. But there's also portions of Bimini which are proper Caribbean, like, you know, Caribbean as it has been for hundreds of years. And it is also a shark sanctuary. And if you're staying in Bimini, I would say the second best shark dive in the world is a 100 meter swim from the shore. Uh. In the same in the same place, within 15 minutes, you can be in the mangroves with baby lemon sharks swimming between your legs. You can be swimming on a wreck surrounded by Caribbean reef sharks. You can be swimming on a completely different wreck, a few like a mile away from that and have nurse sharks nose to nose with you. You can be in the harbor with bull sharks circling around the boats in the same way as they did around Ernest Hemingway's boat, whenever it was 50, 60 years ago. Um, It's amazing. And, and in terms of the shark encounters that you can have easily and close into where you're staying, there is nowhere in the world that comes close. (sighs) And interesting with Bimini, I mean, it's the the nearest Bahamian island to the U- to US. You can get a very short ferry from Miami. It's it's easily accessible if you're staying in Miami as well as if you're taking a trip to the Bahamas. Absolutely, you, you've hit the nail right on the head. Um, but the crucial point is that in Florida, uh, you can still go out on a boat and line fish for critically endangered great hammerhead sharks, whereas Bimini is part of one of the most important, if not the most important shark sanctuaries in the whole world. So uh, landing, targeting, fishing for sharks is completely illegal there. And while it's not 100% adhered to, it is adhered to enough to be a crucial part of the puzzle for particularly uh, tigers, bulls, great hammerheads, lemons, uh, sandbar sharks. All of these animals are so reliant on that no-take zone. Yeah. So listeners, if you watch Steve's program and you're inspired, Bimini's the place to go. Moving on then to chapter five, that is your hidden gem. I mean, Steve, you've been to so many remote places in the world. Tell me about a place that you love that my listeners might not know about. So I I have lots of, of potential hidden gems. 
some of them for for obvious reasons I'd like to keep to myself. <laughs> but uh, one of them would be one of the countries that I added to my total, so somewhere that I hadn't been to before, which is Kyrgyzstan in uh, in Central Asia. We were there on expedition earlier this year um doing the first ever survey in an area of the Tian Shan mountains for snow leopard. Oh and my goodness, wow. It, yeah. Yeah. So we were on horseback but basically, Kiga's life is so based around horses that you're heading up into the mountains, you're going on horseback, no questions asked, even if you're not a particularly good horse rider, which I'm not. So heading up into these mountains, 7,000 meter mountains on horseback, covered in snow, there's Argali sheep and ibex in great herds all over the slopes. There are lammergeiers and griffin vultures circling overhead, golden eagles circling overhead. There are, mm. are marmots in the grass screaming and barking every single second as you walk alongside them. There are wolves and bears and yes, even snow leopard. It, it's really, really special. The people are incredibly welcoming and generous. Um, and from a, from a photographer's perspective, it's insane. From a filmmaker's perspective, likewise, you could, in the area of the Tian Shan where we were, every peak we climbed was a first ascent. Uh, there are countless first descents of, of whitewater rivers left there to be done. It's adventurous paradise. And um, I think is, is going to be on the up and up in, in years to come. So several of the nations around it have started to experience big booms because of, um, you, you know, natural resources. Um, Kyrgyzstan feels like somewhere that is trying to break into the, the out there tourist market. And it has so, so much to offer travelers. Um, so I would say if you're thinking about somewhere that you want to go to that's a, a bit off the beaten track, a bit unusual, a bit weird, where you might get some great wildlife encounters, certainly some stunning scenery. Um, think about Kyrgyzstan. It's it's really special. Mm, that sounds incredible. Did you manage to spot a snow leopard in the end? I, I, I cannot tell you because it's a secret. Ah. <laughs> I, I can tell you that we put out, I think, 100 camera traps in a 700 square kilometer area, and they are full of images of snow leopard. It, it has potentially one of the healthiest populations of snow leopard of anywhere in the world. And um, while I wouldn't recommend going there in the summer to try and see them in the winter, if you went there with your heart set on seeing a snow leopard, I think your chances are, are as high as they are anywhere in the world. That's like a, a wildlife lover's bucket list, top of the bucket list, isn't it? Because they're just so majestic, so elusive. And so, so tricky to find. You know, yeah. there, there are places, I, I know that Ladakh and Mongolia um, and um, and some places in the Karakoram as well are, are offering possible chances of, of finding one, but it's, it's always a lottery. Mm. And actually, speaking of kind of the fact that you could do first ascents there, one of my favourite shows of yours was Expedition, which saw you take 10 world first expeditions all around the world. I mean, most people in their lifetime, you know, might try one if they were a, a top adventurer to do 10 in one tv series is just like mind-boggling to me so reflecting on that incredible achievement which do you feel was the most momentous which was which did you feel most proud of it's it's a tricky one i think that the one that left the biggest lasting impression on me was was one in borneo mm -hmm. um for several reasons first of all i did some of my very first expeditions in borneo and over the years i've seen it kind of fall apart as a jungle nation more than anywhere else that I've been to before. The spread of oil palm 
the destruction of the most phenomenal forests on our planet on a scale that I cannot even begin begin to put into words. It must be devastating as a traveller to see kind of before and after like that. Definitely. And and a place that I, you know, so, so invested in somewhere that I kind of feel so close to the the culture and the people, you know, again, speaking, speaking the language means that I feel that much more at home there. And seeing this, this nation just falling apart has been the low point of my, uh, of my traveling life. But then to go back and find an area of completely pristine rainforest, huge, about the size of a small country. And in the midst of it, in these phenomenal limestone cast peaks to find caves and be taken inside them um, as the first person in modern times to see the inside of these caves. I say that advisedly because inside them, we found figurative cave art that was at least 40,000 and possibly 50,000 years old. Unbelievable. And the thing that really stuck with me was walking around these caves, which no one had been in for, for tens of thousands of years, and and feeling that sense of uh, of everything being the same. You know, you go to the place in the cave that had the best view, that had the, the most aesthetic beauty to me as a as a modern Brit, and that's where all the best art would be. Because 40,000 years ago, one of my ancestors felt exactly the same way. And essentially, we all need the same things. We need security and comfort and a full belly and a roof over our heads. And, you know, there was also, there were, there were signs, there were signs of mourning. There were signs of um, my ancestors having pressed the handprints of their, their dead child into uh, into the roof to leave behind a mark like a, like an epitaph to their yeah. lost youngster, and as someone who'd just become a new father and pressed my young son's handprints into into paint to remember his you know his being a child forever, I, I felt that emotional connection back tens of thousands of years, and it, it really stuck with me. It was a, a a massive achievement. It's been part of a uh, what appears to be a successful drive to get the area protected as a UNESCO World Heritage Site, and so that's the one that I think of all of them. I will treasure the most. Unbelievable! What 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 a way of kind of just showing the the base of human connection throughout history. It must have been so moving. It was the the place has put a complete. Um, chill up my spine but yeah. in a in a really good way yeah and I, I think also the fact that you know you could sense from everyone around the team how special it was yeah the the, the fact that everyone the, the second we went into one of these caves everyone's voices dropped there was no reason for us to but everyone was whispering it was like we were like a reverence to this exactly beauty. that's the word that's the word I was searching for yeah uh, and everyone just felt it and felt that emotional connection which was just uh, amazing mm. Well, in contrast to that, chapter six is your worst travel experience. Is there a place that you remember for the wrong reasons? Well, as we're as we're on it, let's let's stick with Borneo. Um, I did my my first kind of expeditions, even pre the one that I was telling you about in Papua in Borneo in the mm. uh, in the early nineties, and I can remember flying in and seeing this this jungle island with perfect forest heading out to the horizon in every direction 
And then when I came back, when I was working for the Rough Guides just six or seven years later, it was during the year of the Great Burn when the forests of Southeast Asia went up in smoke. And in some places you couldn't see for you know more than 30 or 40 meters because the the haze was so thick from this this burning most of it from the uh, illegal burning of the forests in in Borneo and Sumatra and uh, and West Papua as well and then uh, it it was somewhere that because of the wildlife and the conservation angle and palm oil that I would go back to regularly every three or four years. And every time I went back, it would get worse and worse and worse. So until, were they burning the forests? Um, it was an active decision and yeah. knowing full well that they were full of wildlife. A- absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, so God, the forests were difficult. being raised to the ground to make way for primarily palm oil plantations. And in 2005, I went back on a, a BBC series called Expedition Borneo. And part of the expedition, I spent about four or five days inside one of the oil palm plantations. And the, the spooky thing is, you can be in the forest in Borneo and there is this cacophony of sound, the, the calling of the, the gibbons singing over the canopy, the cicadas, the birds, the frogs. It's deafening and it just is a sound of life. And then you you stand inside the all palm plantation and it's silent. There is nothing living there. Mm. And year upon year, I would go back and I would see the all palm plantations grow and the forests shrink. And it, it became the most devastating sign of what we're doing to our planet. And it left me with a sense of, of absolute powerlessness. I met with the the ministers, the environment minister, the forestry ministers, and you just see they don't care. They absolutely don't care. And it, it kind of brings home to you, how do we succeed? And then you'd start dealing with the palm oil and, and people would say, yes, but you know, responsible palm oil is the way forward. And you go into a responsible palm oil plantation and it's exactly the same as the others. And it's just blatant greenwashing. And it, it, it's something that I think we need to throw ourselves at really properly this this problem as consumers is the best thing that we can do at the moment to be aware of buying products with palm oil and 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 not choosing it making a different choice i think that's a really difficult one because it's in so much lots of yeah yeah and there's a lot of um very good people who are, are sort of boycotting palm oil i can guarantee they're still eating it whether they think they are or not mm. and you know palm oil is a is a fantastic product. It takes far, far less acreage of land to make a litre of palm oil than it does a litre of sunflower oil or rapeseed oil. That There is no easy solution, but the solution has to happen on a grand scale. And I think the best thing that all of us can do is keep in touch with the organisations like, like WWF and Greenpeace who are all very, very active in the moves to, to move forward in a progressive way when it comes to palm oil keep in touch with the solutions, the potential solutions. And we need to start lobbying at a high level. We need to be talking to the people in power and we need to be finding a long-term responsible palm oil solution. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, the other thing actually I, I, I should throw in here is that I do a lot of work with the uh, the World Land Trust and we have a very pragmatic way of dealing with the problem, which is to buy the forest and protect it. Um, so over the last few years, I raised well over a, a million pounds for for forest purchase. Um, and you know, as as travellers, how we how we fly obviously is really important. Think about if you're going to 
offset your flights, which I would say everyone should do, offset it through land purchase. You know, check out the World Land Trust's ways of offsetting every mile you fly by buying and protecting for all time an acre of rainforest. It can be done. It is practical and pragmatic. And when you protect that forest, you protect a habitat for all the things that could potentially live there. Yeah. Yeah. Great advice. Thank you. Yeah. That's, that's really good thing to put into practice. Right. We are on to the final chapter then, Steve, of your travel diaries. Chapter seven is the destination that is at the top of your travel bucket list. Wow. What would be my, my top destination now? Um, there are still so many places to visit. And I, I think the thing that I notice above all is that even the places I think I know well, the Brazil, perfect, perfect example. I've probably been to Brazil 15 times and I look at the map of Brazil and how much I've actually covered. And it's, it's like a, like a thumbnail. It's, <laughs> yes, it's nothing. So vast. There's, there's just so, so much there to achieve. So it's probably not a nation. I think it would be to go back to Suriname, which is a, a jungle nation in the north of South America. And it is the finest jungle nation on the planet. Well over 80% of it is still forested in forest where you actually see wildlife. Anyone that spent a lot of time in jungles and hears me saying that will think I'm I'm lying through my teeth, but I'm not. And we we only spent six weeks there and we ran two rivers that no one had ever been down before. Uh, we went into a canyon off the top of a tapui that had never been explored before. <sighs> and you could have thrown a pin into the map and found an area of forest that is unknown, peaks that are unclimbed, rivers that are unrun. And it was so exciting. So I want to go back to Suriname. I would love to do it when my kids are just a little bit old enough so that they can come out spotlighting for crocodiles at night and catching frogs and bugs and swimming with piranhas in the crystal clear waters running through the heart of Suriname. Amazing. Oh, thank you so much. You're such an inspiration, Steve. Those were your travel diaries. What an honour. Thank you. Thank you very, very much. Ah, oh, what a legend. That was Steve Backshaw. He had such a kind and positive spirit, which left me really inspired after our conversation. I'm sure you could probably hear that. Shark with Steve Backshaw continues on Sunday at 8pm on Sky Nature, Sky Showcase and is streaming now on Now TV. Thanks so much for listening today. If you are enjoying the podcast, then don't forget to hit subscribe or if you use Apple Podcasts to hit follow so that a new episode lands in your podcast app each week. And if you really enjoyed it, then if you fancy leaving a rating or a review, that would be extra special. If you want to find out who's joining me on next week's episode, come and follow me on Instagram. I'm at Holly Rubenstein. Would love to hear from you as always. And if you can't wait till then, remember, there's all of the first five seasons to catch up on. Nearly 70 episodes to keep you busy there. And don't forget that all the destinations mentioned by my guests I always include in the episode show notes. And they're also always on my website, thetraveldiariespodcast.com. Thanks so much for listening and I'll be back next week.
Today's episode is supported by Airbnb. It has been a long old winter here in the UK and in between podcast seasons, I'm going to take a little bit of downtime to seek out some warmth. I'm jetting off to the Greek island of Mykonos, visiting some places that have been on my bucket list. And while I'm hopefully soaking up some Mediterranean sun, my home will be hosting guests from all over the world thanks to Airbnb. It's the perfect way to make your travels even more rewarding. Instead of letting your home sit empty while you're off exploring new destinations, why not turn it into a cozy retreat for fellow travellers just like I do. Whether you choose to rent out your entire space or just a spare room, it's up to you. I list my spare bedroom and it's been a fantastic experience, both financially rewarding and a great way to connect with new people. So if you're planning your own summer getaway or any trip for that matter, consider putting your home on Airbnb. It's a fantastic way to earn extra income that can go towards your travel expenses, souvenirs, or even that special treat you've been eyeing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.co.uk forward slash host. Thank you to Airbnb for supporting the Travel Diaries. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 